HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by our neighbors, Fine and Raw Chocolate, producers of the most delicious bean-to-bar chocolates in Brooklyn. For more information, visit fineandraw.com. Hi, this is Lisa Held, host of The Farm Report on Heritage Radio Network. Each week, I record my show because I'm excited to bring you, our listeners, the most important stories about how your food is produced. At this critical moment in time, stories about how and what we eat are more important than ever. I am so honored to be a part of the HRN community of hosts telling those stories. Whether that means hearing from farmers about using soil health to sequester carbon, giving marginalized groups a voice in the industry, or just bringing people together over a good meal. This year, HRN is celebrating its 10th anniversary, and we need your support to keep food radio going strong for the next decade. Join the HRN community today by becoming a member. Go to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate right now. You can even show some love for my show by selecting The Farm Report in the designation drop-down menu. Thanks for listening to HRN. Hello, this is Lisa Held coming to you live from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn, and you're listening to The Farm Report, a Heritage Radio Network show about the people, processes, and policies that shape how food is produced today. So today I'm here with Stacy Adamando, the editor-in-chief of Savor Magazine. Welcome, Stacy. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm so glad you're here. Um, so we're here to talk about the growers issue, um, which is a special summer issue of the magazine dedicated to the stories of farmers and their crops. Um, and I want to get into all the different stories that are in the magazine, how they came about, uh, talk a little bit about farming in food media overall. Before we go there, um, let's give listeners a little bit of background on Savor. So just in the landscape of food media, you know, food and wine, Bon Appetit, um, what makes Savor unique? That's a great question. 
Um, well, at Savara, we tell food stories, but we tell them through a lens of travel and culture. So, um, you know, rather than just focus on easy recipes or sort of family dinners, which we do have, um, we give our stories a little bit of a spin and try and give as much kind of context and cultural background as we can about each dish. So I say we do two things. One of them is actually like tell you where to go in the world to try all of this incredible food and traditional dishes and sort of get to the root of um, some of the cuisines that, you know, we typically admire from afar. Or we actually teach you how to kind of transport yourself to those places in your own kitchen in, in cooking the authentic recipes. So it's a really special, um, you know, it's, it's, it's tough to like narrow down on a theme sometimes because there are so many places in the world that we cover. We actually introduced a map into the magazine as of last year. So it's part of our table of contents. So when you open it up, you actually see us plot out everywhere in the world that we were. And it's kind of a way for us to check that we're like, you know, getting out to as many places as we can and hiring writers from, you know, all different countries and uh, to represent their regions and their food. So it's pretty fun. I was going to ask you that. Do you, do you send writers just all over the world um, or do you tend to work with people um, in different places? Yeah, well, it's a little bit of both, but since I kind of, you know, took, took the helm as, as the editorial leader, we sort of really tried to focus on um, hiring as many people as we could, either local to those places or um, people that really, really knew either from growing up there or having family heritage there or from actually traveling there, traveling there repeatedly. They really knew that culture like in and out. So we never want to misrepresent a culture. We always want to get the like most importantly, most deeply told story that we possibly could. So sometimes it didn't make as much sense for me to say like, hey, New York based, you know, food writer, I'm going to send you to this country that you've never been to and right. you can tell me a food story. So we really try and work with people who know that culture and its cuisine in and out, um, whether that mean, you know, local on the ground there or kind of uh, very, very familiar and have been there before. Right. Okay. And the growers issue. So is that something that you do every year or is this the first time? This is the first one. Um, so, you know, we're four issues a year and they're sort of these nice, like meaty, kind of almost book-like issues now. So many of them are themed just because it's so fun to kind of like take an idea and run with it over that like, you know, amount of pages and time. Right. Um, so we looked at summer and we thought like, okay, there's so much to celebrate about summer. Is it, you know, uh, like summer cooking? Is it grilling? Is it a part of the world that's like really fun to travel to at this time of year? And then we sort of thought about like what makes summer so great. And at the end of the day, it really comes down to all the abundant food mm -hmm. that's grown. And we wait for it all year and it like makes us feel alive again every time it comes around and we just thought let's celebrate the people who are responsible for that and who give us that beautiful gift every year yeah that's amazing isn't that fun? like I guess I've been like freaking out it's like it's, I know. <laughs> it's such a funny thing but it's like you know that feeling of like you go to the farmer's market and you see strawberries and you're like oh my god strawberries. I know. it's <laughs> like, like the first time you live somewhere time. cold it's just like totally so, you know that change and you know so I love like I love living in a place where there are the seasons and um you know I even think that I mean even in places where the seasons aren't as palpable and aren't as different there's still a very seasonal you know crop and cuisine that kind of come into place in certain times of year and it's like there's so much like activity around it in the summer, right? The farmer's markets get crowded. Everybody's like cooking and grilling and baking and, and posting their, you know, photos on Instagram. And it's like this really active, energetic time. And, you know, again, it all kind of comes down to the things that we don't think about that much, which is 
food coming out of the ground. And mm-hmm. it's something that you can't fake and can't shortcut and can't really get in other times of year. Right. Absolutely. So the issue has a lot of different stories. Um, like you said, there's a map that shows you, you know, where all over the world these different growers are located. Um, you have stories of saffron farmers, um, hops farmers in San Diego, sheep growers in Western Pennsylvania. A t- I mean, those are three <laughs> examples of many, many <laughs> other. Yeah. Um, is there a story that stands out to you that really resonated with you the most? Um, Gosh, they're all so wonderful. And I um, really, you know, admired the writers who kind of brought these stories to us and the way that they sort of were able to look at something that seemed small, you know, again, that you see at the grocery store every day and kind of like open up this huge world behind it for us. But um, I think, you know, one that stands out a lot is Kate Morgan's story on the sheep farming in Appalachia in southern Pennsylvania. Um, Basically, you know, she brought us this story about how this uh, region of, of southern Pennsylvania is really rediscovering its sheep farming roots in sort of what's been a coal-blighted economy there. So they were a really huge coal mining-focused industry. And basically, as that started to fade out and die out, and we started to turn to, you know, somewhat more sustainable forms of energy, there's been a lot of economic downturn there. And Mm -hmm. something that the government is sort of working with the locals on and the agriculture uh, boards around there is, like, you know, bringing back the skill of sheep farming because – the land is not great for growing many things, right? It's very mountainous, it's rugged, it's got a lot of rocks, um, and that's just not conducive to growing a lot, but it's perfect for raising sheep. So um, it's been this beautiful effort by some of the local farmers there to sort of recruit new members and train them and give them classes and, um, you know, just teach them the skills that they need to kind of perpetuate the sheep farming industry again. And it's really kind of bringing things back to life. New restaurants are opening there and uh, the chefs are sourcing some of the local lamb and, and mutton from uh, the farmers. So it's just been this like beautiful full circle kind of slow, but you know, positive transformation for that area. And I thought it was just such a great piece for this issue. Yeah. That was actually one of my favorite stories that really stood out to me. And for one of the reasons that you mentioned, which was that it really, showed this um, idea of producing food that makes sense for the place, you know, rather than saying like, this is what we want to eat. We're going to try to grow it regardless of the resources available. Instead, like looking at this place and saying, what, what can this land provide for us? And it's perfect for sheep, you know? And, and it's cool too, because it's really, it's sustainable. And it also gives people a little bit something new to kind of, um, investigate from a culinary perspective. Like Mm. I think, you know, you're so used to sort of like the similar, um, things that you see at the grocery store. And all of a sudden, if lamb is coming back into sort of vogue, I guess, um, in that area, it's inspiring people and it gives chefs something to put their muscle behind and their stories behind and kind of just ties everybody together. Like there's something to talk about. There's something to rally behind. And then there's also something really good to eat. Right. (laughs) (laughs) And, and the other piece of that story, which you mentioned, um, in the beginning is that, it's about the community. It's not just about the growers. It, it does talk a lot about the people who are raising the sheep, but it's about kind of the um, revitalization of that community. Definitely. Um, do you think that 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 Savoir readers are interested in how the production of their food affects the communities it's grown in? 
I think anybody who loves food and wants to see, you know, your favorite foods and, um, you know, international ingredients stay around, like kind of has to be at this point. And I think it is something that sometimes can seem secondary when, you know, you're busy and you're just worried about your grocery list and how to get food on the table or what, you know, exciting thing you're going to cook for the weekend. But I think, you know, once you sort of hear some of these stories and get an inkling of what else there is to learn about it it kind of just opens up your sense of curiosity and now all of a sudden you're kind of looking for like where wait wait what farm is this that I'm buying from at the farmer's market <clears throat> you know where is where is this uh coming from and what's the story behind it is it family owned is it a cooperative um you know there are a lot of sort of wonderful um immigrant driven um you know and refugee driven programs popping up around the country things like that so so there's so much to learn just from like a carrot that you might buy every week and never think to ask the questions yeah absolutely um <laughs> another story that i liked a lot was um the one about hop growing um outside san diego yeah. um there was this tiny tidbit that i just like <laughs> dog-eared the page i was like oh my god which was that the farmers in the story said that on their specific farm, and it, they they kind of made the point that it was because because of their size, or you know that this isn't it doesn't apply to every hop farm. But they said the harvest window for their entire year is six hours. Yeah, it's crazy. That shocked me so much. <laughs> well, I think it was fun to kind of investigate this. I I didn't really know that much about hops, and um, this writer Beth Demon, who brought us the story, sort of you know, introduce us a little bit to the world of domestic hop growing and how it's very, you know, specific to certain regions of the country because it requires certain seasonal changes and, and changes in temperature. Um, but this farm is one of the sort of smaller, you know, they also grow other things like citrus and avocado, but, um, you know, they have this small plot of their land dedicated to hops and they end up sort of just like crowding the space because they grow really, really tall, like dozens of feet into the air. Um, you know, they're suspended on these sort of like wires that help the vines grow up. And it's almost like we described it sort of like a, like walking through a sea of kelp in the ocean, you know, like mm. you're just sort of covered by all these green tendrils. Um, so it's a really beautiful story, but one crazy thing about it, right, was the, um, amount of work that goes into it. First of all, the delicacy of these hops and how much each strain kind of brings out these different notes and flavors, which of course makes so much sense when you think about how different certain beers are, but you don't really readily think about it. Like it comes from the nuances of the hops, you know, and then, yeah, these tiny windows that, uh, they're able to harvest in, I mean, their acreage, right, is super manageable. So they're able to do it literally in one day, you know, a few hours in an afternoon. And by the end of that day, they're delivering those hops to local craft beer makers. So it's pretty amazing. Yeah. Makes you really appreciate that beer for sure. <laughs> yeah. And, and one thing that they say, you know, is sort of the prized way to use them is these wet hop beers, uh, which mm -hmm. I kind of heard about in passing, but um, it sounds like you know, they're just so hard to get your hands on and so special that they actually use those fresh hops right off the vine instead of the dried ones that are more concentrated in flavor. So they're really delicate and they just kind of, it takes more of them to make, you know, a similar amount of beer. Um, so they're really high, high value and high prize and sort of like rare to get, but they kind of showcase like that real essence and sort of terroir and um, the flavors of like the particular strain of hops. So it sounds pretty cool. I kind of like want to start stalking them or something <laughs> <laughs> yeah I think I think they said it for the brewers too have a very short window when working with those wet hops like they have to 
make the, they have to do it right away. Like they can't store them, which, yeah. you know, so it's like everybody is kind of on this crazy timeline. Yeah. Um, I think Beth wrote that it's within 24 hours. Yeah. So crazy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> were there, were there other things like that in the stories in this issue, like, um, that highlighted challenges faced by growers that surprised you? Definitely. I mean, some of it's sort of crazy because it's almost like built into the land. Um, you know, we wrote a story about Canary Island wineries and um, one island in particular, the island of Lanzarote out there, um, this is off the coast of Spain, they have this insane backstory where basically volcanic uh, eruptions sort of just coated the island in volcanic ash. And when you look at it, I mean, it literally looks like you're standing on like the moon or something like mm. that. No, there's no possible way anything could grow here because it's just like jet blacks, you know, sort of rocky soil. Right. Um, but they they sort of like, you know, by some means of like stumbling upon uh, different things and by others of just like experimenting, it sort of came upon this way of growing grapevines that is so unexpected. It's so cool to look at. You'll see the image in the issue. Um, but it's almost like these big craters that they build into the the soil and you know these these puny little vines grow up from them but they have you know the the vines work so hard to produce these grapes and they get so little water that the flavor is really wonderful they're really high acid sort of like lighter bodied wines and i mean it's some of the like you know i think some of the most sought after wine by like wine geeks these days hmm. um yeah but i mean just the unlikeliness from looking at the the land and the map is like why did anyone <laughs> you know why did you try to grow that there yeah, that the yield is so small it's like oh my gosh like a lot of the the growers actually have to sort of take on a second job like in the tourism industry or you know catching fish or something um to sort of even make a living doing it but yet they're still dedicated cuz it's delicious and special and really like specific to that area right yeah that that picture is really striking um yeah that volcanic soil and there are some other i mean there are other challenges like the saffron story that you mentioned mm. is crazy because these families you know we specifically spotlight um this region of Kashmir called pampur and they you know there's 19,000 saffron growing families that have been doing it for generations and all of a sudden you know their livelihood is being threatened by drought so you know whether it's brought out by around by climate change or just weather patterns or whatever's happening um you know they've had several years of really intense drought so it's formally been covered you know a field covered in these gorgeous saffron crocuses and you know the the saffron gold as they call it kind of just like amply coming out of the ground now is sort of like this measly very very small percentage that's coming out and the fields look sort of barren and it's really sad and strange and the families are either sort of selling their land to big growers or you know industries that are just going to take over and grow other high yield crops there or they're sort of holding on for dear life and just like hoping for the best and it's yeah. super sad yeah that that story stuck with me because I couldn't figure out what what I what I should do like I was like oh my gosh these growers are, are struggling so much and I was like sh does this mean we should stop buying saffron or should I buy more saffron like I yeah. couldn't I couldn't figure <laughs> yeah. out like what what would I help know. more like is it maybe this crop just isn't something that with the changing climate that is going to be possible for people to grow in the same way it was before and there should be programs to help growers transition to growing other things it's or yeah. you know it's kind of a I think for now I mean I you know would say supporting the saffron from that region of India is yeah. probably not a bad idea I mean these guys are just like really depending on it and 
there, you know, I think some of them are just like, it's, you know, as, as sort of the main character of the story said, it was like, you know, his family's clinging to this legacy and it's not really just a business. It's sort of like a form of ritual and worship and, and a large part of their day and identity. So, um, for them to imagine just switching over to something else is sort of like unbelievable. You yeah. Know? I think you see that a lot um, in our country with dairy, like, you know, the really small dairy farms that just for generations, that's what they've done. And it's so hard in dairy right now. And it, it is, you know, and you, people say, well, just just switch, do something else. And, and I mean, that it's an economic challenge for one thing, but also there is that sense of like, if that's what your family's been doing for generations, Definitely. And, um, that happens a lot. Um, Okay, well, we need to take a quick break. Um, When we come back, we're going to talk more about the growers issue. We'll be right back. Today's program is brought to you by our neighbors, Fine and Raw Chocolate. They make bean-to-bar chocolate and confections in HRN's backyard here in Brooklyn. Fine and Raw is committed to sustainably sourcing their cocoa beans directly from organic cocoa farmers. They use minimal processing and stone grinding to accentuate chocolate flavor and aroma. Their chocolate is sweetened exclusively with unrefined coconut sugar, which blends delicious caramel notes into the chocolate. Crafted for chocolate lovers, all of Fine & Raw's bars, truffles, and spreads are 100% plant-based. From creamy bars blended with nut butter to salt-sprinkled dark chocolate, sweet truffle bars to toasty coconut dulce de leche, Fine & Raw is obsessed with creating next-level flavors. Their chocolate hazelnut butter made with the best Oregon hazelnuts is the best thing you could ever eat with a spoon. It begs to be drizzled on ice cream, waffles, strawberries. You get the idea. Above all, Fine and Raw is a community of people dedicated to the idea that chocolate is magic. Visit fineandraw.com for your chocolate fix. All right. We're back. This is Lisa Held. You're listening to The Farm Report on Heritage Radio Network. I'm here with Stacey Adamando, uh, the editor-in-chief of Savoir Magazine. We've been talking about the growers issue, which tells the stories of farmers around the world. And the first part of the show, we talked about all the different stories, kind of um, got into the details of a couple of them. One thing I wanted to ask you more about is something that you wrote um, in the magazine, which was actually... We, we kind of started to get into it at the beginning of the episode when we were talking about the excitement of the market. Mm, um, mm-hmm. uh, you wrote sort of an ode to sour cherries that was kind of like really um, highlighting how excited you get by that season when the cherries are available at the New York farmers markets and everyone totally. rushes to enjoy them. It's such a short moment in time. Um, yeah. I mean, this is like one of those great sort of like micro seasons that, I mean, first of all, if you blink, you'll miss it. And if you're not like heading to the market every couple of days, you you literally will because people snatch them up right away. But also, I mean, if you weren't like, you know, in the loop about them in the first place, you just might not even really realize that they exist in the region. Mm -hmm. They're sort of like patchy around the country. You know, a lot of them are grown in the Midwest and then... Um, you know, some of Pennsylvania, you know, Michigan's like the big, the big place in their fruit belt, Pennsylvania. Um, there's some in Connecticut and New York, but really like, you know, 
they're very regionally specific and they're sort of followed by this like cultish uh, band of people who know to look for them at this certain time every year. And if that's not you, you might just like not even realize this whole thing was going on. So <laughs> I love it. True. But it's also the idea of eating cyclically, like with what's in season. Um, it's obviously a very old idea. And um, I, I think it, it kind of gets at a lot of solutions to issues we're facing in the food system. Um, but most people don't eat that way now, right? Like you decide what you want to eat on a given day. Um, you go to the grocery store, you buy that. Um, how, how can we as in the media sort of, um, help readers embrace that excitement and eat more seasonally? Yeah, I think it's a great question. I mean, I'm thinking of a couple, like two weeks ago, my husband came back from the grocery store just on like a routine run. And he was like, I can't take it anymore. Like I have to go to the farmer's market because if I walk in and see the same produce all year round, I'm just going to lose it. You know, it's like, it really, it's not even that fun, you know? Um, Mm -hmm. And I get that we can't always all get to like fantastic farmer's markets every week or, you know, that, that often as we have to just do the kind of convenience shopping. But when you kind of break out of that routine, head to the big supermarket and just like pack your cart with the same stuff that you cook every week, it just, it's, you know, it opens up the senses. It's like introducing you, you know, sometimes you have to kind of like look up recipes on how to use something that's new to you. Mm -hmm. So it's just like, it has this trickle down effect of your whole life. I think where it's like, Ooh, I'm so excited to see this. Then I'm so excited to buy it. Then I'm so excited to, you know, Google or like look in my recipe books to see like what I can, can make from this. And then it's actually eating it and, and sort of cherishing it because you know, it's not going to be there for a while. So it's super fun. And I think we try and do it. I mean, in this issue, clearly like you know we tried to bring up as much as as possible that's sort of particular to the summer but um there's one section in particular that we called the market report that was you know about these bizarre little things that you find and maybe you pick up and you smell and you're sort of like what is this but we're sort of encouraging people to buy those things like instead of a cantaloupe you know try this different you know sort of oblong speckly shaped uh you know can cantaloupe looking thing that you see and ask the farmer what it is or um instead of like grapes like buy those pretty pearly currants and use those in in a recipe or you know serve them on, on the side of a cheese board um i mean i think it's just kind of having an open mind and being willing to spend maybe a couple extra bucks at the market here and there to experiment and get to know what else is out there. Yeah. You had, um, Colini in there too, didn't you? Yeah. Which is so funny. Someone else I work with mentioned this to me, uh, recently, like, do you know there's a new vegetable? (laughs) (laughs) It's like, it's like cauliflower and broccolini like it's really cool it's like it's like this gorgeous little like sculptural like it almost just looks like you know like a wand and a cauliflower stalk like were combined into one or something like it's got these sort of um little delicate you know uh, crowns that sort of hang and droop a little bit like a like a weeping willow tree or something Mm. and it's a little bit more thin so it cooks quickly and is a little bit more tender to eat like in a crudite platter or something but you'll start seeing it a little bit more like now that I know about it I'm starting to like find it in grocery stores and it's a little bit more expensive because it's so specialty but Mm. all you need is like a couple pieces thrown into you know like a pasta dish or onto a crudite platter or something and it's like so special and different and I don't know. It just makes people kind of say like, oh my gosh, like that's gorgeous. You know, whereas yeah. cauliflower doesn't always elicit that same no. effect. Have, have yeah. you tasted it? Yeah, it's great. Does it, it tastes, have more flavor than cauliflower? 
It's actually, I'd say, almost like a more mild cauliflower crown, and then the stalk almost tastes like a fusion between cauliflower and broccoli. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. It's cool. I like it. I a lot. haven't actually seen it. I'm gonna I'm gonna look for it. I'm now I'm intrigued. Yeah. <laughs> um and, and another thing that you wrote in, in the magazine that um that I pulled out was this quote from your editor's letter where you say, When you look at the world farmer first, you'll find a story behind every bite. Yeah. Obviously I agree with that. <laughs> this is the farm That's report. That's mantra, right? Yeah. <laughs> so we spend lots of time talking to farmers and talking about farming. Um, but, you know, I'm a journalist and I write a lot about farming. And um, I, I find that food media rarely w- looks at um, the world farmer first. Yeah. Why do you think that is? I think, you know, a lot of times, I mean, magazines in particular, they're sort of, you know like the glamorous part faces outward first, right? Like Mm -hmm. you want to see that gorgeous finished dish. Um, You know, you want to see sort of the most servicey moments. Like how do I make that? That's the takeaway that you're, you know, a lot of readers kind of skim and look for first. So sometimes telling the story about, you know, naming the farmer by name or talking about their struggle or, um, you know, what makes their vegetable different or special or unique or difficult, you know, um, to grow is, is it takes reading and effort and, um, sort of like a greater indulgence and, um, commitment to, you know, a magazine. So of course we, we love to do that and that's what we pride ourselves in. And we really want people to like take that time to get behind the story, whether it be, um, you know, the, the traditions behind the culture or the particular like home cooks or chefs that we're gleaning all of this knowledge from. But, it's, you know, it's a commitment. You, you have to be curious and you have to like want to go the extra mile and not just pull out the recipe and get to cooking, but actually take some time to be thoughtful about like, okay, what, yeah, what is worth celebrating about this food? Like, why do I love this dish so much? Um, and those are the questions we try and answer and kind of lead people to. So, yeah. Do you find that people, um, respond to stories that are more farmer focused? Well, this is this issue's been out for a couple of weeks, so I'm definitely hoping so. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it'll be on stands through the summer, and I think when you walk by and see the cover of it, it's got this like gorgeous um, sort of almost like a like an artwork, you know, created by all these different vegetables and fruits and seasonal stuff, and it's like colorful and compelling. And you know, I think in general, wanting to cook with more produce and beautiful, you know, fresh seasonal ingredients in the summer is a lure, and I think people will will, you know, sort of gravitate toward it, toward it because of that. But then again, I hope they sort of invest and walk away, you know, knowing that when they walk across a farmer's market stand or, um, you know, they're wondering which saffron they should buy in the saffron aisle, mm. like, you know, maybe they're going to think twice and um, kind of pass along. You know, it's, it's good cocktail party conversation, too, to just sort of say, like, oh, you made this with saffron? Like, did you know that right now, you know, saffron is kind of – having this huge critical moment and might not be around in as much, you know, quantity and, and sort of like, um, availability as it is right now. Like, I mean, I think it's interesting, you know, so you have to spend a little extra time and we're hoping that people are happy to do that with us. Cause it was really, really fun to investigate ourselves. Yeah. And you know, the, the saffron story is interesting too, because it's about climate, right? They, they were facing a drought yeah. and that was a huge challenge. And 
um, I wonder if as, you know, climate issues are, are more and more pressing and people are thinking and learning more about them, if, um, that will kind of stoke a little bit more interest in, in food production and farming because it's so related to, um, climate change. Yeah, I hope so. And I think everybody's kind of, I mean, as like another season comes and goes and we just all experience these wacky weather patterns and sort of like, you know, what's going to happen this year kind of, you know, nervousness. Um, I think it's, it's getting more and more impossible to ignore that things are changing. I mean, you can even see like certain fish patterns are changing, like the migration of certain animals, the time of year that they go, or, you know, the actual destination that they end up at is physically changing around the map right now. And that is unbelievable and crazy. And, um, you know, if you're from a region where that's happening, like, I mean, it's the most important thing in your life right now because it's it's completely transforming entire communities and what they eat and what they do for work. But if you're, you know, just kind of used to buying the products from those places too, like you'll notice, you know, upticks in prices or, um, you know, the shelf being depleted at the store that you normally get something from because it affects us all, you know, on some level of the chain. Um, I think we all can't kind of escape it for long and, and we'll be hearing more and more about it. Perfect. Um, where can people get their hands on the growers issue? Uh, well, we are available where magazines and books are sold, um, <laughs> and hopefully we'll be front and center, uh, the bright, pretty cover. You can't miss it. <laughs> and are all the stories online as well? Yeah, we trickle them out online over the course of the time that the issue's on stand. So right now you might not find all the stories online, but you'll definitely be able to um, access them and cook the recipes from them on Sever.com as the, the weeks pass. Perfect. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Thank you all so much for listening to the Farm Report on Heritage Radio Network. If you enjoyed the conversation, please subscribe to the podcast, rate it, and share it. I'll see you next Wednesday. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please... Join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.